Would you turn with me to the, the Gospel of John? John chapter 2 or <clears throat> in verse 1. We'll be going down to verse 11. John chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Well, the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you would help our minds to not be distracted so that we may give all our attention to what your word says about Jesus. We want to know him. We want to behold him. We want to cherish him. We want to love him more because of what your word says. So we pray that you would open our ears and give us the eyes to behold Jesus in this passage this morning. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen. We're pretty good at interpreting signs. Like, for example, when you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you hit the brakes and then you hear that loud squeaking sound, well, that's kind of an indicator that's telling you, well, you need to get your brakes replaced or checked. Or when we start coughing or sniffling or sneezing, but then that's kind of a sign that's telling us that our body's telling us, well, we're about to, we might be coming down with something. Or when we look at the sky, we see clear blue skies in the morning, or when we see dark clouds, we have an indication that, well, it's either going to be a, a very nice day because the clouds, because the sky is clear, or we know that it's going to be a rainy day. Now, it's up to us what we do with the signs that we get. And sometimes we choose to ignore the signs, like I have been with my brakes and haven't replaced them in months, and not right now, months, weeks. But, or we can choose not to take the umbrella with us before we head out, knowing that it's going to be a rainy day. But the signs are there. We know how to interpret them. But it's up to us if we heed the warning signs and then put ourselves, hopefully, in a much better position because we don't want to be caught 
in the rain without an umbrella, or we don't want to uh, cause further damage to our brakes, or we don't want to end up with a fever. So we take the proper steps. In the Gospels, actually, in, in the book of Matthew, in one of Jesus' many, many conversations with the Pharisees, the, the Pharisees demand, the religious leaders, they demand a sign. Show us a sign, kind of proving to them who Jesus is. And Jesus doesn't give them a sign and says, he, instead he tells them, listen, I know that your minds are working, right? He says that you can, un, you can interpret the days, right? You know when it's going to be a clear day. You know when it's going to be a, a cloudy and rainy day. So things up here are working properly, but you just fail to, uh, to, to interpret the signs of the time. You have failed to interpret my teachings. You fail to interpret the signs that I've done already in public before the people. The problem is not up here. The problem is that you refuse to believe. You refuse to heed the signs. Well, here in the Gospel of John, in chapter 2, we have the first of Jesus' signs in the Gospel of John. John actually gives us seven signs in his Gospel from chapters 2 to 11. This is the first one. And each one is there for a specific reason, for a specific purpose. They each tell us something different about Jesus. And so, we're going to walk through this passage, see this first sign, which doesn't seem like a, a very big deal. It's just turning water into wine, but there's a lot there to kind of unpack. And that begins with an honest, an honest request made to the Lord. So it says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was invited to the wedding along with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So clearly Mary cares about the wedding, right? And we don't know if she was related to somebody in the wedding, to somebody in the wedding party. It's hard to say because back then in their culture, uh, the, it was a much more elaborate event than what we're used to. Because the wedding in their, in their particular culture, they had many guests. It was a whole town or a whole a um, whole village affair, everyone was invited to partake of this celebration. And so Mary and Jesus could have just been neighbors who were invited to the wedding. And also the groom was expected to provide enough wine for the celebration, not only for all the guests, but also for the entire week. And so, so, you, don't, so, so, so you don't think that this, is just, this becomes kind of like a a drunken mess, their wine was actually heavily diluted. The actual alcohol content was actually was less than the average American beer. But the wine was important because wine was a sign of celebration. You have wine in order to celebrate, but if you want out of wine, well, then there goes the celebration, and the celebration is supposed to last a certain amount of time, but if you run out of wine, then it goes the celebration, and the celebration ends prematurely, well, then that's not a good thing. In fact, for the, for, the, for the groom to not provide enough wine for the guests and the celebration would actually bring shame and disgrace upon him and the family for years. And so Mary cared about the fact that there was no more wine, and she looks like she cared about the reputation of the groom. And so hence why she goes to Jesus and says, we've run out of wine. To which Jesus responds and saying, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, that sounds really disrespectful. Woman, what is this? What, right, I wouldn't imagine uh, talking to my mother that way. But it's not meant to be disrespectful. It's almost akin to saying, ma'am. 
But Jesus, even though he's addressing his mother, he's creating some distance between himself and his mother. And that'll be, and that'll be become much more clear later on. But it's just something to keep in mind. So then his mother responds by looking at the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. So there's an expectation that Jesus is going to do something. And I don't think Mary was expecting Jesus to do something about this situation because she's his mother. Like, I'm your mother, and I'm telling you what to do, so you should do it. But, a, but Mary came to Jesus with a different heart, with a different attitude. She didn't come to him believing in him, not as her son, but as the son of God. Hence why is that she leaves the matter to him. She just simply says the, water has, the wine has ran out, and she leaves and just expects Jesus to do something. That is, I think, that she shows an exemplary faith the first sign of faith that we see in the gospel of John. So he makes the situation known, and then that's it. It just leaves it the matters to Jesus, right? I mean, how, how good are we at doing that? When we come before the Lord and make our request known to the Lord, I mean, are we quickly able to separate ourselves from the situation and go on? Or do we have a tendency to be able to want to, to just kind of want to take control of the situation anyway? But the example we see here is that a request was made, and then the, la- the matter was left to Jesus. It's, a, it's an, an incredible sign of faith and trust. And it's the kind of faith that we're called to have. So the request is made. And the next in the narrative, notice Jesus' strange response. And I'm not referring to his, you know, what does it have to do with me? But he says, my hour has not yet come. And Jesus, and you have to understand, Jesus and his disciples at that moment had no idea what in the world he was talking about. What does he mean, my hour has not yet come? And now some of the rhetorical effect is lost to us because for most of us, well, we've either grown up in the church or we've read through the Gospels and we've seen this statement before and we know what this statement means. But for early readers, for people who have never heard the Gospel before or have never read through the Gospels, they're like, what's Jesus talking about? It's intended to generate some curiosity, some tension into the story, and get people to kind of start developing greater and greater interest into kind of what's going on in the story. And if I could spill the beans, for those of you who may not be aware of what Jesus is talking about here, Jesus is referring to his death, burial, resurrection, and his exaltation. In John 12, 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it. Whoever loves his life, sorry, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So Jesus is kind of describing his ministry as a, way, a, a, a wheat, a grain of wheat that falls into the ground and it dies. But if it dies, it burrows into the ground, it bears much fruit. And that's what Jesus is referring to, talking about his own life, that he must die in order through his life it would bear much fruit, that is, fruit unto salvation for all those who would believe. And what our passage here in John chapter 2 is, is showing us is that there's a connection between Jesus' hour, this death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation, and his granting this request for more wine. And that connection is that every time 
you see Jesus perform a sign in this particular gospel, in the gospel of John, it's intended to drive the story further and Jesus' life further and closer and closer and closer to this final hour that he's referring to. And he says to his mother that that particular hour of his full revelation has not yet come yet. But his doing something about the wine that has run out gets him closer to that hour. And so you see, actually, Mary doesn't even know what the significance of what she's asking for. In Luke 2.33, when, uh, when Jesus, as an infant, is presented at the, at the temple for dedication, Simeon, the priest, says in verse 34 that Simeon blessed them, Joseph and Mary and the baby, and he said to, his, to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts of, for many hearts may be revealed. So for Mary to ask Jesus to do something about the wine is to bring that sword that is Christ's death on the cross closer and closer and closer to her own heart. But we can't falter for what she's asking for because she doesn't know or understand yet that this is what Jesus Christ came to do, to die for sinners. And in so doing, her own heart would be broken. So Jesus is wanting to be careful about how much he reveals at this moment in time because Jesus is in control of the time. He's in control of how he's going to reveal himself to people and in what manner. And Jesus is in control of the entire story. And so no one else is directing it, not Mary, not any of the disciples. Jesus is the one who is in full control and he will disclose himself little by little, over time, in whatever manner he decides to do so. And everything that he does is driving to this climatic conclusion. And not even his own mother at that time understood that, nor his disciples. But as simple as this sign appears, right, just turning water into wine, there's embedded also in it a, a, a revelation of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. So pick it up in verse 6. It says, Now there were six stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So we see Jesus grants his mother's request. And in the simple answer to this request, it's a profound theological significance. So Jesus had these, the servants fill these stone water jars that were used for, for ceremonial cleansing. And, they were, and the fact that they were stone made them almost impervious to uncleanness when people used them, when the religious teachers used them for cleansing, for cleaning their hands. But it's significant that Jesus would use these stone water jars, right? They're separated for religious purposes, and he would ask that they would be filled with wine, to, with water, to then turn them into wine. And this shows us at least two things. The first is that Jesus shows greater concern for people over the ceremonial laws and Levitical prescriptions and regulations. 
seeking to spare the groom and his family from the shame of running out of wine during their celebration, Jesus makes 120 to 180 gallons of wine. And not just an, an okay wine, not like a $10 wine, but this aged and fine and exquisite wine. And we're going to see over and over again, and if you read through the Gospels, you know this, that Jesus always, always shows greater concern over people, even if it means disregarding some of the religious laws of his day. In John 5, 9, after Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, it says that once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, that is the religious teachers, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So in other words, you can't even get up and walk with your bed somewhere. It's unlawful. It's not, it's prohibited. But he answered that the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and kind of <laughs> ratted Jesus out. He told Jews, the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So it's not that Jesus doesn't care about the laws, but the laws are there in place for man. Just like the, law, the laws, the Sabbath was created for man, not man or the laws for the Sabbath. They're there for the, for the protection of the people, for the provision of the people, for the care of the people. But what the Pharisees, what the religious teachers did, well, the, here's, the, here's one law, you know, there's the Sabbath. In order to, and so then, in order so that people do not work on the Sabbath, we'll create this law on top of this law on top of this law so that nobody breaks this fundamental law of working on the Sabbath. And so you end up with a law that says that you can't even pick up your bed and go walk home with it. Or you can't, uh, or a farmer can't uh, rescue his sheep from a ditch. Or Jesus cannot heal on the Sabbath because it's, con it's considered work. Again, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about the law. He cares about the law, but he shows greater concern for people. And that is why he heals on the Sabbath. That is why he tells this man who has been healed to go home and take up your bed with you. The second thing that this sign of turning water into wine shows us it shows us that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. So Jesus creates an, a, a spectacular abundance of wine, and wine is actually a sign of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 19, sorry, Matthew 9, 17, Jesus says, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And Jesus is, is using that as an illustration to talk about his ministry. Right before it was the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Levitical laws, the Ten Commandments. Not that it wasn't important, it is still important. But Jesus says that the new ministry that he has ushered in requires something new. That something that the, uh, it's something that, uh, that only the new, that something new can only contain it. Right? The old ways, as, as important as it is, cannot contain what is new. But something new needs to be replaced. And Jesus' new ministry is that which replaces the old covenant. Jeremiah 31, 12, it says, looking forward to uh, a, a, 
a great banquet with Jesus Christ. It says, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, over the wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall, be, shall languish no more. Amos 9.13 also looks forward to the kingdom of heaven. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. So Jesus and the prophets all understood that the arrival of the king in this messianic age brought about by Jesus Christ would be characterized by a time when the wine would flow liberally. And so that is what this sign of turning water into wine is intended to communicate, that Jesus has arrived, that the king has arrived, that the kingdom of heaven has indeed arrived. And it leads to the glory of the king. The passage concludes this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So by providing an abundance of wine, showing, he's showing that the first signs of the infiltration of the kingdom of heaven into the, our world has, has happened, has begun. Jesus manifested his glory to the servants and also to the disciples who were witnesses to this incredible sign. And that is that they reveal something important about Jesus, right? That he is the son of God, that he is divine. Now, we don't know how the servants perceived this particular miracle, but we know from the passage that disciples, as a result, believed in him. Now, it doesn't mean that they believed him to the fullest sense of the, of the idea. That is, that they fully believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he came to die on the cross for sinners, but they believed a little bit more. Over time, they would, be, they would come to a greater and greater understanding and greater faith in Jesus Christ. What else Jesus reveals about himself through this sign is that he shows himself to be the bridegroom. In Revelation 19, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then in Ephesians 5.25, familiar to all, many of us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present, her to the, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands shall love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom who provides the most exquisite wine for the celebration, and that wine never runs out. And this first sign is not only intended to point to this last hour of his death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation, but it's, point, it's intended to point even further past that to this incredible celebration 
of the marriage between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. That's what the church is looking forward to, and it's going to be an incredible celebration that puts to shame any exquisite and languished and costly marriage that you've ever heard of or ever seen. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon, he spoke about the blessings of the gospel represented by a feast, a feast that God's children will all look forward to. He says, God is the host. Tis he that makes the provision and invites the guests. And sinners are the invited guests. Believers are those that accept the invitation. And Jesus Christ, with his benefits that he purchased by his obedience and death, in which he communicates by his spirit, is the entertainment. What it means by that is that Jesus Christ is the center of the celebration. Right? It's not that he puts on a show. In fact, he's already put on the show. He's died on the cross for our sins. And then when that day comes, when Jesus Christ is joined to the bride, that is his church, and there's a joyous celebration, it is because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. That's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focal point of that wonderful occasion. And Jonathan Edwards continues, and he says, As feasts are expensive and are provided at the expense of the host, so the provision which God has in the gospel made for our souls be exceeding expensive unto him. We have it for nothing. It costs us nothing. But it costs God a great deal. Fallen men can't be feasted but at vast expense. We are by sin sunk infinitely low into the lowest depths of misery and want, and our famishing souls could not be provided for but under infinite expense. All that we have from God for the salvation and support and nourishment of our souls cost exceedingly dear. Never were any that feasted at so dear a rate as believers. What they eat and drink is a thousand times more costly than what they eat at the tables of princes. This is far-fetched and dear-bought. The reason why that celebration that we will look forward to is incredible is because it cost a whole lot to put that together. It cost the very life of the Son of God. And one day, we're going to, though we celebrate it now, we come here on Sunday mornings, we worship the Lord, we praise Him because of what He's done for us on the cross. But when we are joined to Christ, when we see Him face to face, when the bride of Christ is made with uh, is clothed with righteousness and purity, that celebration is going to be, can't even imagine. It's going to be in incredible, full of joy and celebration and wonder. And if you have yet to believe in the gospel, you're missing out on that celebration. Jesus is calling you this morning to become a part of that celebration. He's calling you to believe in him, to trust in him as the Lord and Savior. He will forgive you of your sins if you place your faith upon him and commit to live your life for him. He will give you eternal life, a life that you will enjoy even now as you look forward to that incredible celebration with Jesus Christ. So that, that is what we as saints have to look forward to, and that's all what's embedded in this, this, this simple sign of turning water into wine. So then, what are we to make of this passage with our own personal lives? And that is, believe in what's been revealed to you. Believe in what's been revealed to you through God's word. Notice what the passage tells you about your wonderful Savior. First, it tells you that he is approachable. 
Forget for a moment that Mary was the mother of Jesus. What we see here is, an, is, a, important, is, is, is a relationship of discipleship. That's the relationship that matters most. That's why Jesus will say that those who are my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters are those who do the will of God. Because what matters is a relationship of discipleship. And that's what we see in the passage. When it's a relationship of discipleship, well, then we can come near to the throne of grace. There was a request made, and that request was granted. And I know that we understand that. We know that Jesus is approachable, that we can come to him at any time, at any hour. But do you put that into practice? Do you really believe that? Do you really show that? For many of you, including myself, prayer is the last thing on the list, when it should be the first thing. Your Savior wants you to come to him. Your Savior wants you to trust him. Philippians 4, 6 tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right, Mary was anxious about the wine running out. She made a request to the Lord, and she trusted the Lord to do something about it. If you're anxious, if you're dealing with anxiety right now, have you prayed? Have you prayed? And if you're still feeling anxious, then what do you do? Then you continue to pray until the peace of God rests upon your heart and in your mind in Christ Jesus. Also, know that there is no request that is too mundane for the Lord to hear. Right? The wine was running out and a request was made for more wine. Now, the Lord may not always answer your requests, right? at least not in the way that you intend. But, you know, sometimes, you know, when we, sometimes we always just assume the answer is no. Like when we are thinking about like a boss and taking time off, we might hesitate to ask for the time off because we know this is a mean boss and we just assume that the answer is no, so we never ask. But we should never approach the Lord in that way. We should never assume that the answer is no, and we should never assume that our requests are too trivial for the Lord to care about because the Lord cares about every single detail of your life, and you should make a request known to the Lord. There's nothing too mundane for the Lord to answer. Don't wait until the big decisions to pray to the Lord and ask for his strength or for his favor. Don't wait until there's a crisis in your life. Don't wait until something huge happens and you need the Lord. No, we need the Lord every single day, every single hour. Make a request known to the Lord. There's nothing too mundane for the Lord to hear. And then the last thing that we know about the Lord based on this passage is that he cares. Jesus answering the request for more wine shows that he cared about the reputation of the bridegroom and his family. Now, it was intended also to communicate greater things about himself and to bring him closer to this last hour that he's looking, that he's looking ahead towards. But it shows that he has concern for people. 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you for you. Did you realize what 1 Peter is saying? Do you realize what this passage in, in John chapter 2 is telling you? That the God of the universe, the God who sits enthroned above the heavens in majesty and glory and honor, that he actually cares about your life. 
the one who created all things in the universe, who gave you life and breath, he cares for you. The God who sent his son to die on the cross for sin loves you. He cared for you so that you may be forgiven of your sins through your faith in him and you may be declared righteous in his sight. And if even your sins could not separate you from the love of God, then certainly, as it says in Romans 8.38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Your God cares for you. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This passage has a lot that, has, that, that reveals to us about, the, about who Jesus is. Right? He cares for us. He loves us. He is approachable. There's no... There's no request that is too mundane for the Lord to answer. He is the, the eternal bridegroom who provides this incredible celebration that we have to look forward to. That's what's revealed in his word. And his word is telling us that those the, the things that are revealed to us, that belongs to us. That's ours for us to grasp, to meditate on, to think about, to worship Jesus Christ for, to thank him for. That's revealed to us. So think about those things and put those things into practice in your own life. Seek the Lord, approach him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Lord, even though you are enthroned above the heavens, you are near to us. Through your Holy Spirit who abides with us. This is something that better than what the disciples had. Yes, they may have had your physical presence. But now your spirit actually abides with us wherever we are and wherever we go. And because of that, we can approach you. We can pray to you. And because your spirit lives in us, we know that you care for us. Lord, we admit that sometimes we, we, we forget that. But I pray that this word would serve as a way of reminder to your people that you are with your children and that you care for them and that you want them to come to you because your ears are always attentive to the prayers of your children. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.